So last week we started this series called Open Houses, talking about just the power of inviting people in. And so for the whole month of December, that's just what we're talking about, open houses, inviting people in, and how throughout the whole part of the Christmas story you see people inviting people in. And as I was getting ready for this week, I started to think about, what is my process for inviting somebody in? Like, how do I actually get somebody into my house? And I'm going to tell you, okay, you cannot judge me for what I'm about to tell you, okay? You cannot use this against me or hold it against me. But I have basically a three-stage process for inviting someone over into my house. The first stage is what I call the coffee stage. Before I invite you over into my house, I want to meet for coffee. Because coffee takes place usually in a public space, so that if you turn out to be a complete psychopath, there's at least witnesses, and I can get out of there relatively unscathed. Like, when you meet someone for coffee, you're really only sacrificing about 30 to 45 minutes of your life. And there's a built-in excuse. So if things are going badly, like, it only takes about, you know, like half an hour to drink a cup of coffee or faster, depending on the circumstances. But then you can always say something like, oh, I've got a meeting I've got to get to, or I've got another appointment, or I've got some errands I have to run. So after 30 to 45 minutes, you get to leave, no questions asked. And it's a natural breaking point, everything is okay. If you pass coffee status, the next stage is let's go out to dinner at a nice restaurant. Now, there's a little bit longer of a commitment here. You know, you're, you're 90 minutes, two hours, two and a half hours, But once again, you have a built-in excuse. Oh, I've got to get back home to the kids, or I need to get ready for tomorrow. So if once again, if it turns out you're a little weird, or you you just want to keep harping on some issue and convince me that I've got to do this or something like that, you know, if it's if it's weird in any way, shape, or form, two hours of my life is all that I've lost. And so if you pass dinner in a public restaurant status, then you can come into my house, okay? But see, the thing is, once, I call it spaghetti status, because the first time I invite somebody over to my house, I'm probably going to make spaghetti or some type of pasta, because it's really hard to screw up. Most people like some form of pasta or something like that, and it's easy to take care of. But once you're in my house, I'm kind of at your mercy, because I'm not going to be so rude as to tell you eventually, you need to leave, go home. I can't do that. It just, it's weird. I, I can't do that. So if I invite you into my house, I, that means on some level I'm committing to at least a whole evening with you. Like I said, before I moved here, I worked with college students. They never got the memo about what time it was appropriate to leave. You know, it's like, I'm going to bed. It's 1 a.m. And they're like, okay. I'm going to bed. Okay. So once you welcome someone into your home, you're stuck. You're like, you can't leave. That's where you live. And that's why in almost every single culture throughout history, welcoming somebody into your home is a real sign of friendship and respect because once once they're there they're there and you're kind of stuck and so as we talk about open houses today i want to show you through the christmas story the power of inviting someone into your home and i'm going to make a statement now and it's going to seem a little bit like okay jeremy you're exaggerating but my hope is that after i say this and after this morning is over we'll be convinced that this statement is actually true. And here's the statement. We can change the world through inviting people into our house. Let me say that again. We can change the world through inviting people into our house. Don't believe me? Let's take a look at the Christmas story. Let's take a look at some other things. And I'm betting at the end of this day, you're a little bit more convinced. 
So we're going to start at the beginning of the Christmas story with a girl named Mary. Mary is about 14 to 17 years old, okay? Think back to when you were 14 to 17 and what kind of state of mind you were in and all the wise decisions you made during that time. 14 to 17-year-old girl. And here's what happens to Mary, starting in Luke chapter 1 of the Christmas story. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. I find it really funny. An angel appears to Mary and says, Hey, you're highly favored with God. And her first thought was, Oh no, what's going on? What's, what's about to happen? She's, she's, she's a little bit smart. She understands, okay, angels don't just randomly appear. There's, there's got to be a reason. Um, and the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Mary, 14, 17 years old, finds out she is carrying the Son of God. She is going to be mother to the Son of God. She has what I would consider to be a completely appropriate technical question. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Good question. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Okay, once again, put yourself in Mary's shoes. 14 to 17-year-old girl in a culture where it was legal to stone someone to death who got pregnant outside of marriage. Now imagine that you have to go and tell all of your friends and all of your family, Hey, I'm pregnant. I promise you I'm a virgin, but somehow I'm pregnant and my child is the son of God. Who's going to believe you? And remember, like, if we think that unwed teenage moms have like cultural stigma today. Nothing compared to what this girl would have been going through in that culture and in that time frame. So she's just been told, hey, something great's going to happen, but let's, let's be real. No one's going to believe you. When Joseph finds out, Joseph's plan is to kind of quietly divorce her and, and because in, in those days, being engaged was almost the same as being married. It was legally binding, so it was much greater than just an engagement was today. So Joseph finds out about this. His decision is, okay, I'm just going to quietly divorce her and walk away. I don't really want to embarrass her further, but this is over. And so Mary is told, you're going to have the Son of God, and she knows no one's going to believe me. No one's going to trust me. I feel utterly alone. Best news in history, but I feel utterly alone. And so what did the angel do? The angel threw her a lifeline, something that she could hold on to. The angel told her, hey, look, you've got a relative named Elizabeth. No one thought she was going to have a kid either because she was too old. It had not happened yet. And so Mary, let me tell you about Elizabeth. Nothing's impossible with God. And so what does Mary do? What would you do in that situation if you felt completely alone and you found out there's somebody related to you that might understand? The very next verse, this is what it says. In those days, 
Mary arose and went with haste, I bet she did, into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. So Mary gets told, once again, you're pregnant with the Son of God. You've got a relative who's also pregnant six months in. What does Mary do? Mary runs with everything in her to go see Elizabeth, and Elizabeth welcomes her in. And Mary, shy, quiet, scared, teenage girl, gets to become Mary, the mother of Jesus, because Elizabeth and Zechariah welcomed her in and spent three months pouring into her. Mary, do you want to know what it looks like to be pregnant? Watch Elizabeth. Mary, do you want to know what it looks like to be a wife? Look at Elizabeth. Mary, do you want to see what a healthy marriage looks like? Look at Elizabeth and Zechariah. Mary, do you need someone in your corner cheering you on? Elizabeth's going to do that for you because she's understanding the circumstances that you're in. And what the mistake a lot of people make is that when we hear about someone who has an issue, we feel, I can't do anything for them because I can't solve their problem. Elizabeth couldn't solve what was happening with Mary, but what Elizabeth could do is welcome her in and cheer her on. And that's honestly what a lot of people need. They don't need us to fix their problems. They need us to welcome them in and keep cheering them on and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to walk with you through this. Mary got three months of encouragement 101 because Elizabeth and Zechariah opened their home. And that's how we change the world through opening our homes. Now, some of you are still like, okay, okay, this is a nice story, Jeremy. I like the Christmas story. I like the idea of Elizabeth welcoming Mary into her home. But I don't have anyone pregnant in my family with the Son of God. So I'm not quite sure that this applies to me. Like, how do I do this when I don't have an obvious, oh yeah, the Son of God, you're in your womb, okay, I got it. How does that work for us? Or does it even work? Can we really change the world through opening our home and inviting people in? Well, about 300 years after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, about 300 years in, in the Roman Empire, Christianity is spreading like wildfire. And the emperor at that time was an emperor named Julian. And Julian did not like this. Julian was very committed to the pantheon of gods and goddesses from the Greek culture. So, you know, Zeus, Apollo, all those things from Greek mythology. He firmly believed in them. And not only did he firmly believe in them, but he'd been spending a lot of money either building or restoring temples to the gods and goddesses. And no one was showing up at the temples. And this made him kind of mad. And he's like, okay, where are all the people going? And he starts to do some investigating, and he's finding out, okay, all of the people of the Roman Empire are becoming Christians. And this really bothered him because he thought Christianity was a form of atheism because they believed in one God. He's like, look, there's dozens of gods. They believe in one God. I consider that almost atheism. And so he starts investigating, what is the appeal of Christianity? I mean, all the people in my empire are turning to Christians. I don't get it. So he does some investigation He does some research into what is causing people to become Christians. And he writes a letter. This is the emperor of the Roman Empire. He writes a letter to one of the high priests of the Roman faith. And he says, okay, here's what I've discovered about this upstart religion called Christianity. And what I'm going to read you is an excerpt of the letter that Emperor Julian wrote to um, Aritius, the high priest of Galatia, talking about Christianity and why did it seem to be growing? Why did it seem to be spreading? And this is what he said. Why do we not observe that it is their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretend holiness of their lives 
that have done the most to increase atheism. Remember, he considered Christianity a form of atheism. For it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, and the impious Galileans, he called them Galileans, that was his word for Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. Teach those of the Hellenic faith to contribute to public service of this sort. The Galileans, or Christians, also begin with their so-called love feast, or hospitality, or service of tables. For they have many ways of carrying it out, and hence they call it by many names. And the result is that they have led many into atheism. So the emperor of the Roman Empire notices that hundreds of thousands of people are becoming Christians. And he says, okay, I've done some investigation. It comes down to basically four things. Christians take care of the poor. Not only their own poor, but our poor as well. And everyone sees that we're not doing anything, so there's more appeal to the Christians. They bury the dead with respect. In that culture, uh, a proper burial was an expensive thing. And a lot of times, if you were poor, you were just shoved into whatever mass grave or even left to just kind of rot or whatever. So they said, Christians, make sure everyone gets buried with respect. And that carries a lot of weight in our culture. They said, they, he, he thought it was pretend. He said, they have these pretend holy lives. Oh, yeah, and they do this other thing, and it has a lot of different names. But basically, they're inviting people in and sharing meals in their home. He's like, some call of it, call it the love feast. Now, I personally will never invite you over to my house for anything called a love feast. So that just, that, that just sounds a little too weird for me. He's like, but some people also call it hospitality. Hospitality is more my style. That's, that's a word I could use. He said, some people call it the service of tables. The service of tables sounds kind of like a, like a hipster bar or something like that. Like, where are you guys going this Friday? Service of tables. Okay, yeah, for good things. But whatever, he's like, you know, but whatever they call it, they have lots of different names. Lots of, but basically, people are being welcomed in, eating meals together, and it's changing the world. It's changing my empire. I don't get it. And, and maybe you're sitting there today, too, and you're like, okay, well, how does this make such a difference? Why does inviting people in and sharing meals make such a big deal? Well, you have to understand one thing about the Roman culture. Status determined everything about you. And a lot of times, status was determined at birth. If status did not determine a lot about you, what you were capable of producing determined a lot about you. So just try to imagine a culture where everyone was judged by how productive they were or how much stuff they had. Not that difficult, all right? Most people in the Roman Empire were not cared for as people. They were cared for as, what can you do for me? And imagine a whole group of people who were told, hey, there's these people called Christians, and they will just welcome you in. Like, they don't really care about how you can repay them or if you can repay them or if you can do anything for them. Christians will welcome you in and treat you like you matter simply because you are a person. How many people do we know that don't have anyone in their life that care for them just because they happen to be human? What changed the Roman Empire and what changed people throughout history is having homes where people can come in and say, you know what, you matter to God and you matter to me, and it doesn't matter anything else about who you are, what you've done, where you've been. You can be my friend, no strings attached. The Christians could not solve all the problems that the people had, but they could tell them, you matter to God and you matter to me. And see, when you bring someone in and treat them like a friend, that is one of the things that is most desperately lacking in our culture. 
One of the weird things that I've noticed um, in our culture currently is that we have this thing going on where our deepest relationships aren't with real people. They're with characters on TV shows based on whatever it is we binge watch. You're like, I've spent 50 hours in the past two weeks with Walter White or Don Draper or, you know, I know all about Empire and I can tell you all about the craziness of that family and their music and stuff that they're trying to do. But I can't tell you anything about my neighbor. I know very, very little about the people I work with. And so what we do is we spend our times isolated in our homes. We're binge-watching our television shows, or we're watching social media, or we're just scrolling through, and it's like, oh, it looks like everyone in the world is completely happy and have no problems whatsoever. Look at how wonderful their homes are and how great their children are. And, and so what we do is we don't really know anyone except for the highlights. We don't really know what's going on really in their life. And so we just assume that everything is okay. We assume that they must be doing just fine because we don't really know them. The thing that I found out is the more I invite someone into their home, the more real they get to be and the more honest they get to be and the more I get to know about their problems. The more time you spend with someone, the more that you start to just kind of let your guard down. I told you in the beginning, I have my three-stage process. I don't share a ton of details over coffee about what's really going on in my life. We'll talk about sports. We'll talk about work. We'll talk about stuff like that. But by the time someone gets into my home, there's a lot less barriers. My guard's down a lot further. And so when you welcome people into your home, you're letting them know that, hey, there's a safe place where you don't have to pretend to be perfect. But most of us never get there because we never put time in with people. We never put the time in to see what's going on in their life. This was really brought home to me the other day when... um. It's Christmas season, so they're always throwing up holiday movies. Now, I think whatever decade you're born in, those are the movies that are the most nostalgic for you. So, for me, I love the movie Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. I was born in 1981. If, you, if that makes you feel really young, congratulations. If that makes you feel really old, I'm sorry. But 80s movies tend to have like a nostalgic place in my heart. And I was watching Planes, Trains, and Automobiles the other day. And in this movie, it's one of those classic two people from completely separate worlds get thrown together. So you have Steve Martin, and he's like this uh, business executive, and you have John Candy, and he's this uh, shower ring salesman. And they're both on an airplane trying to get from New York to Chicago to get home for the holidays. And, of course, it's a movie where everything goes wrong. So the plane gets grounded due to bad weather. And so then they have to, like, take a train together. And, of course, think bad things happen with the train. Then they get a car. And so basically, for the, over the course of three days, these two guys who probably would never really share a conversation under any other circumstance are forced together and forced to spend time together trying to get from New York to Chicago, trying to get home for the holidays. And as the movie progresses, you kind of see, okay, these two people who would never really share a conversation start to become friends. And then there's this moment towards the end where they finally made it back to Chicago, and they're going to go their separate ways. And just that explains the power of welcoming somebody into your home. I love the sappiness of 80s movies. I love just like the, it's such an obvious pull on the heartstrings or whatever. But what I was thinking about with that scene is that Steve Martin, the ad executive, he couldn't solve all of John Candy's problems, but he could invite him in. And what, what touches us in that moment, by the way, I'm sorry if that spoiled the movie for you, but it is 30 years old, so... If you haven't seen it now, you're out of luck. But it's such a, like I said, it's such an obvious heartstring pull because we, we see the power of inviting someone into our home. 
We see the power of telling someone, hey, you have a place where you can come and belong. Yeah, sure, we're not exactly the same. Yeah, sure, this is probably not something that would have happened under normal circumstances. But guess what? You're a person and you matter. And so you're welcome here. And when we think about it, I don't actually believe most Christians are mean, heartless, selfish, bad people. I just don't. I think what happens, though, a lot of times is that we just never learn anyone's stories because everything stays at a very surface level. I think almost everyone in this room would be totally willing to help someone out in need if you knew they were in need. But most of us never find out the needs because, it's once again, it stays at a surface level. It stays at, oh, let's just have coffee or let's have dinner in a public place because we're scared to invite people in. But once we get over that fear and we welcome people in, we learn their stories. When Emperor Julian was talking about the fact that Christians helped the poor, they weren't doing it just simply because it was a good thing to do. I mean, they were. But the poor, in a lot of cases, had stopped being the category, the poor, and it had started to become individual people. It wasn't just the poor, it was Sean. It wasn't just the poor, it was Amy. It wasn't just the poor, it was Stephen. When people get to know people, you have no problem helping out a friend. If my friend is in need, I will help them out no matter what. I don't have to think about it. When someone comes and asks you to help a stranger or to help a category, you start to think long and hard. What have they done in their life? Are they deserving? Is this money actually going to go there? Is this just going to be furthering a bad habit? When it's someone you know, you don't question. Yeah, you need a ride? Sure, absolutely. You need some help? Absolutely. Why? Because you're my friend. And that is the power of opening our homes. When we open our homes, we turn acquaintances into friends. And most often, it's a friend that leads us to Jesus. If you think back to your own story about how did you get introduced to Jesus? Most of us can point to a friend or a relative that was instrumental in leading us to Christ. The gospel spreads best through relationship. The gospel spreads best through friendships and relationships. And so when we're welcoming people into our home, when we're welcoming people and telling them that they matter, what we're doing is we're giving them a tangible demonstration of what we ask them to believe. I'm telling you, I want you to believe that there is a God who loves you. Well, if they've seen and experienced love from you, it's a lot easier to believe in a God who loves them. The power of opening our homes is it shows, beyond a shadow of a doubt, what we believe to be true. If you're someone who opens your home and lets people come in, you're giving them a front row view of the God of the universe who says that they love them. So many people have a hard time believing in a loving God because they've never experienced love from anyone else with no strings attached. All of the relationships they've ever had have been contingent upon something. I like you as long as you blank. I like you as long as you perform. I like you as long as you keep doing a good job. I like you as long as your looks stay this way or your bank account stays above this number. Very few people have anyone in their, cat, in their, in their corner saying, I like you simply because you are human. I like you because you've been made in the image of God, and I'm going to love you no strings attached. I said earlier that this had the power to change the world. It's already changed the world once before. The Roman Empire went from 120 Christians at the time of Jesus' death and resurrection to half the Roman Empire became Christians, some 24 million people in the course of about 250, 300 years. Why? You got to remember, Christianity was basically outlawed during that 250, 300 years. They didn't have people who could gather large crowds and tell them great, awesome sermons. They had to meet in homes. And it spread like wildfire because everyone is capable of opening their home. 
You don't have to be incredibly intelligent. You don't have to be incredibly gifted. You don't have to have massive skills that you can display in front of a large group of people. Anyone can invite someone into their home and treat them like they matter. And that is the secret sauce of open houses. That's what makes the difference. All of us can welcome somebody in. We believe in this so much here at Adventure that we've made it our milestone. This is how we're measuring where we're going as a church. And basically, this is what it says. We want to see more than half of our congregation doing life with their unengaged neighbors once a month, making bold moves to share their Jesus story. About four to 500 people call Adventure home. Can you imagine the power of every month, 250 people being invited into homes, saying, hey, no strings attached, just want you to come in, wanted to let you know that you matter to us, wanted to let you know that no matter what you do, no matter what your background is, you, you got a place where we're cheering you on, you got a place where you matter. Imagine 250 people in December getting told that. Imagine 250 people in January getting told that. Imagine 250 people in February being welcomed into a home. Do you see the power that this would have over time as more and more people just start to say, hey, once a month, I'm sharing a meal. You can come on over. We'll talk about whatever. And as we get to know each other, when needs start to arise, when 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 you're tired of living the Facebook, Pinterest life, and you really need someone to open up to, you've got months of time spent with this person. I can share what's really going on in my life. I can share what's really going on in my heart because I've got friends that I know I can trust. And that is my prayer for us as a church, that we would be a place that just welcomes people in, that turns acquaintances into friends. I truly, firmly believe we can change the world through open houses, welcoming people in. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a time and um, just, just pray. The band's going to come up. I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to open up an invitation. Maybe for some of you guys here today, you've never had anyone tell you that Jesus loves you. You've never had any place that you could call a safe place. I would love to pray with you today. I would love to tell you about the Jesus who does love you, the Jesus who does care for you. I'd love to tell you about the fact that he, he died and rose again for you so that you can spend eternity with him. And so if that's you today, if you've never even heard this message at all, our prayer team will come forward. We would love to pray for you, love to tell you about Jesus. For everyone else in the room, those of us that would call ourselves Jesus followers, my challenge to you today is, who are you going to invite in? Who in your circle really needs a place where they can be invited in, no strings attached? Don't assume that the Facebook status you see is the real story. Don't assume that the Pinterest life that most people are trying to pretend is the real life. Take a bold move, invite someone into your home this season, and that's it. You don't have to do anything else. Be their friend. So many people are in desperate need of just that, a friend. We can change the world through opening our homes and loving people like Jesus did. Let's pray. Our dearly Father, Lord, it is my prayer that we would be a people of open houses, that we would be people who welcome each other in, Lord, what Mary most needed at that moment in time was Elizabeth just saying, come in, I can't change things for you, but I can definitely walk alongside you and cheer you on. So Lord, my prayer is that we would be a people who cheer each other on. We would be a people who welcome each other in and say, you know what, I will love you, no strings attached. My prayer is for anyone out there today who's never heard that message, that today would be the day that they accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, knowing that they are fully loved as they are that you don't ask us to change before we come to you. You ask us just to come. And so, Lord, make us a people 
who change the world. Make us a people who change Natomas. One meal, one home at a time. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.